If you have a copy of God's Word, the very first reference that we're going to be making our way to is in Matthew chapter 7. So I would invite you, if you brought a Bible with you today, if you have one on your tablet or your phone, uh, if you have a smartphone and don't have a Bible app, you have plenty of time to grab. You can go to BibleHub.com and figure out where Matthew 7 is. Uh, Feel free to do that. We'll also have those verses for you on the screen as we make our way there. We are in a six, excuse me, we're in part six of a ten-part series today. Uh, describing the way of Jesus. We began a number of weeks ago trying to figure out, is there a hole in our discipleship model? Many of us who've grown up in evangelical churches seem to know a lot more about what not to do with our faith than we do of what it looks like to actually follow Jesus, the functional steps a person can take in their daily life to, uh, to use the language of Brother Lawrence of the resurrection, to get into God's presence and to stay there, to practice the presence of God. And so we've heard from Jesus as our rabbi, we as his apprentices, we've heard of him as the vine in whom we abide. He's been for us uh, a teacher. We've talked about how we are formed, and we've said this for the last few weeks, and I want to say it again to you. I, I just I want to hammer this into your head. I've recently learned that public communicators like me under-communicate by a power of 10. Now, you may be thinking, no, you don't. You're really repetitive, and I don't agree with you at all, uh, but we'll see. Maybe you'll recognize this language. Apprentices of Jesus structure their lives around three objectives, to belong to Jesus, to behold him, and to become like him, and these are words that we draw straight out of the New Testament story. Uh, to, be, to belong to Jesus is to be called into his family by him, to be invited to be his apprentice, which is an open offer to anybody who will come. Uh, to behold him, this is one of the things that uh, John the Baptist said in his precursor ministry to Jesus, where John was able to build a following of disciples, and then uniquely in all of Near Eastern history, he handed off some of those disciples to Jesus. And he said to them, behold, this is the lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. And then ultimately we want to become like him. We hope that by immersing ourselves in his way, in his perspective, in his teaching, that we actually stand a chance to become what the New Testament calls the body of Christ, that we would effectively accomplish the mission of Jesus on the earth. So how do we do that th- those things? We've said that we have sort of a formation paradigm that we use, what we call dynamic spiritual formation, and it consists of five factors. And just as a quick reminder to you, if you were not here the last couple of weeks, We've said that uh, we can intentionally participate in teaching as opposed to the stories that our culture believes and tells us. We can participate in practices, uh, intentional disciplines that we bring into our life to counterbalance and undo the routines that we just naturally fall into without thinking. Uh, That we willingly participate in community. I've defined community for you as the people we inherit from Jesus. Our relationships are the people that we choose, the people that we like, the people who are like us, the people who make us comfortable. Oftentimes our community is a set of people who may be in our neighborhood or who go to the same service as us, who we might have never been friends with, but in Christ we have enough in common to forge a deep and meaningful relationship. Fourth is the Holy Spirit, that instead of the physical environment that we live in, which for most of us is Anchorage, Alaska, the United States, the the West in many ways, it's our cell phone, is the digital space that we interact in all day long. We want to instead be in the presence of the Spirit of God, that wherever we go, we are in line at the bank or in line to pick up our kids or waiting at the doctor's office or checking email, but we're also in the presence of God because he is with us at all times. And then finally, spiritual realities as as opposed to our experiences. Our family of origin shapes us where we come from. Uh, The kind of part of the United States that you grew up in, in many ways, probably has impacted you either positively or negatively from your own perspective. You either love that and miss it, or uh, you ran from it as soon as you could. But we have new spiritual realities. What Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's close by now. And many of us don't live that way. We live as if heaven is a place we're going somewhere in the future, uh, that there is no sense of dominion or rule over the earth that Jesus brought along with him. And yet, the, the principle Jesus teaches more often than any other is that the kingdom of God has come. 
The kingdom of God is here. So last week we focused on the first factor in those five. We talked about teaching, the role that teaching plays in our lives and what we should expect when we ingest good and right teaching from God's word. Today we will focus on the second factor. We will interact with the idea of practice. And to sort of bring the plane off the runway, I just want to remind you of the thought that we closed out with last week. We tried to answer the question, why do we need more than teaching? And the answer to that is, well, what you think does matter. Obviously, our thought lives play a huge role in the ins and outs of every day. But you cannot think your way to Christ-likeness. You will never, simply by ingesting the right information, experience full transformation. Otherwise, Jesus would have set up a community college in Galilee, and he would have lectured class after class of hundreds of different people, and that would have been the way the kingdom of God came to the earth. That was not Jesus' model. Jesus' model was an invitation to physically follow, to share life with, to engage with him. Our model of discipleship needs to mirror that. But even if we didn't have that example, just think in practical terms. I think that we probably all know, practically and have experienced, that simply gaining a new idea, even a Christian idea, even a church idea, does not immediately result in transformation for us. I think most of us have hoped that it would at some point. If you're like me at all, you get some kind of new information into your head on a Sunday morning. Maybe there's a passage of scripture or a quote or a concept that really sticks for you and you go, man, that's profound. If I believed that, that would change my life. If I acted upon that, I would be a different person. Or maybe you leave a life group with a strong conviction to cut out some pattern of sin that you've been able to confess and identify with your community. You find yourself inspired. You realize that the teaching has done its job, right? Teaching grabs our imagination and helps us believe that there's a different future available to us than the one that our life is currently aimed toward. You feel sure that you need to make a change. You know that it's going to cost you something, but you're sure that you need to take the next step. And then what happens? Your phone rings, right? Or you get an email, or your kid yells from the other room. One of your many children needs your attention again. And you begin to float back into the middle of your busyness. You begin to float back into the middle of your responsibilities. By the middle of the next day, no matter how profound the teaching was that we ingested, for most of us, we are right back in the same pattern of life. So why is that? Why doesn't it stick? And if it doesn't stick, why have we been so comfortable for so long putting the majority of our eggs in the basket of teaching? Why have we not learned by now that there needs to be more dimensions to the way that we understand and practice the way of Jesus than simply reading more and listening more? Our problem is not a knowledge problem. I don't think we have a knowledge problem. I believe that we have a love problem in our lives. It's not so much what we know or don't know that dictates the way that we live out our days. It's what we love or don't love. What we love has a far greater influence on our lives than what we know. And I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again. Knowing something is not the same as doing something. And doing that thing is not the same as wanting to do it. But oftentimes we equate the two. We say, well, we can kind of figure out how to make A into B, and we can kind of figure out how to make B into C, and so we'll just say that A is the same as C. And wouldn't it be nice if it was? Man, if ingesting information was all I needed to do to transform my life, I would quit my job and read for two or three years, and then I'd be perfect. And that would be great for me and for you and for my wife and my children, but that is not the way that life works. It never has been. James K.A. Smith wrote a great book about the spiritual power of habits that's called You Are What You Love, and I would recommend it to you if you're looking for something to pick up. It's very readable. It's definitely worth your time. In that book, he gives dozens of great examples about the difference between knowing something and loving something. Uh, There's a great story where he talks about how his wife wanted him to start eating more clean, and so she gave him a book, and he's a big reader. He's a professor at a college, and so he took the book with him. He had a highlighter, and he's highlighting all this stuff. He's taking notes in his phone on his Evernote app about how he needs to change this and change that, and he only wants to eat free-range, vegan, single-source, whatever. And then in the book, he talks about how he realizes he's reading this book. He looks up, and he's sitting in the food court at Costco, 
eating a Costco hot dog. And he realizes it's great that he has this book, it's great that his wife wants him to change the way that he eats, but he really loves hot dogs. And so he's going to have to make a choice about his actions that's going to impact the way that he eats. He can't just ingest that information. I want to share a story from my own life that I hope will help you understand what I'm saying. Uh, my wife and I have a seven-year-old daughter. Her name is Elizabeth. And like me, she really values dessert. In fact, in our house, dessert is something that we take almost immediately. It's usually the first thing that goes when there's been a bad choice made or a negative attitude. Uh, about a month ago, my daughter brought home a small pack of Oreos, like four or six, like the little cardboard pack. I think they gave them away at school or something. And you may not know this about me, but I love Oreos. And I don't say that as an exaggeration at all. I truly love Oreos. When I say love, I mean love. I love the texture of the Oreo. I love the ratio of cookie to cream. I love the oily way the frosting feels in your mouth. I love the way they soak up just the right amount of milk. Uh, their consistency, everything, okay? In my life, I'll say this to you, friends and enemies have come and gone. Oreos have been there. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> So Liz got some Oreos, and she put them in the pantry. And I don't know, maybe she lost dessert, I'm not sure what happened, but for three or four days, she didn't ever touch them. And every time I would open the pantry to grab something, I would see them there, and they would wink at me. You know how food does that to you? It's just like, hey, I'm still here. Don't forget about me. I'll be here if you need me, you know. Anyway, four or five days went by. I felt that it was immensely disrespectful to the Oreos, right? How dare she in my house? And I'm a firm believer in allowing your kids to learn from their own choices, but at some point you have to step in. You have to identify an injustice and do something about it. And so I did. Uh, one night, probably after 11 p.m., which you'll remember is when we make our best decisions in life, I went into the kitchen and I pulled out the pack of Oreos and I ate them all. I more or less inhaled them uh, into my body. I don't think I even sat down. I didn't go to a table or a chair. I just stood in the kitchen with a coffee mug of milk and a six-pack of Oreos and I demolished them. And I felt pretty good about it. And then my wife, the next day, texted me while I was at work, and she said, hey, where are Elizabeth's Oreos? And I was like, well, at this point, they're probably in my upper intestine, but it could be lower, I'm not sure. I'm gross like that with my wife. But I told her, I ate them, I owned it, I took responsibility, and I said, I'll get her more on my way home from work. So I did. On the way home, I got her another small pack, and I brought them home, and it was no big deal. I used my own money to buy them. Um, and then she ended up not eating them that night again, right? And I don't know, maybe she lost dessert again, I'm not sure. I was probably not a part of that decision in any way, right? Maybe I was. So I ended up eating that pack that night. I just needed to, I mean, they're there. I don't know. I know where you can buy more. I just did it. It's pretty easy to get another pack for $2.49. I ate the whole pack. I didn't even put them in the pantry. I left them on the counter when I got home. I thought, we don't need the song and dance, right? We all know what we're here to do. The Oreos know their job. I know what I intend to do. Um, so I had to go back the next day. I went back to Walgreens had this kind of walk of shame to the Oreo aisle, went back to the same person working the register, kind of tried to laugh and tell my story. That person did not think it was amusing. But what I learned was they were out of small packs. So like I had no choice. I had to buy a family pack of Oreos, which is 36 Oreos. Uh, it's three sleeves of 12, if you uh, haven't done the math. And that night, you'll be proud of me. I only had four of the 36. At first, I only had four. And then I felt really good. I did, I was like proud of myself. I thought, you only ate four, you've earned some more Oreos. You only had four Oreos, this is... So I had eight more Oreos uh, in the kitchen, and then I went back and sat down, and then I, uh, I went back into the kitchen, and I grabbed the whole pack, and I ate the whole pack of Oreos. <laughs> 1,900 calories of Oreos. Now here's the deal, all right? I didn't grow up isolated somewhere where I don't know what an Oreo is. That was not my first encounter with them. It wasn't that I didn't know what they're made of, it wasn't that I didn't have immediate access to how many calories is in an Oreo and what they're made of. They have enough soybean oil that I think they kind of count as a vegetable, but they don't do the same thing to my body. 
When I stood in the kitchen that night, I knew everything. I knew that if I ate 36 Oreos, I was going to feel like I had the flu the next morning. I knew that I would not sleep well. I knew that I would be cranky. I knew that my workout would be a nightmare the next night. I could not drink enough water to flush 36 Oreos out of my body in time. And I even knew the attitude that my loving wife has about my midnight snack habits. I had all of the right information to go, you know what? Oreos are not good for me. I don't need to do it. I had four. Moderation, right? That's good. I'll walk away and I'll feel really good about it. It wasn't lack of information, it was love that drove my actions. And that's an innocent example, but in your life, the reason that you go back to the same things again and again and again, the reason that I have had hundreds of meetings with young men in their early 20s in which they can quote every single Bible verse about lust, and yet they text me 48 hours later that they've downloaded porn again, is because we don't have a knowledge problem. We know. We are waiting for knowing to do something that it can't do in us. Knowing is important. Knowing is a bedrock foundational element of being able to live the way of Jesus, but it is not the way itself. It is a map. It is a road sign. It is how we gather the information we need to know right and wrong, but it is not the execution of that right and wrong. That night as I stood in the kitchen, I glutted myself on dessert, knowing full well what would happen to me because I wanted something bad enough, because I had a love in my heart that outweighed the logic and the consequences and the future, to the point that I didn't ignore what I knew, I bargained with it. I told myself, I can, it'll be okay, whatever the consequences. I mean, I see this in the life of my seven-year-old all the time. She'll confess, she's very honest, that she broke a rule on purpose because she weighed the cost and she thought the consequence wasn't that bad, so I think I can handle it this time. I wanted to get out of my bed a 15th time tonight. I wanted to not brush my teeth today, and I'll take the consequence for that. And in her honesty, I see a microcosm of all of us, that we love or don't love something bad enough that it drives our lifestyle in a way that knowing the right thing never can. It does me no good to simply know that moderation is key when it comes to dessert in my life. I have to actually begin to practice moderation for my life to change. Now, don't misunderstand me. Where we're about to go today, it would be easy for you to only hear a little bit and to leave and think, that pastor told me that I have to make myself into a Jesus follower 100% today, right now, or else. And that is not the message. The message is many of us have made this so black and white that we refuse to take any kind of small step. And if we will, if we'll embrace that apprenticeship to Jesus is a lifelong journey, we'll give ourselves permission to take one small step. In my life, that one small step looks like a lot of different things. When it comes to Oreos, it probably means going ahead and putting them in the pantry. Having to open the door is one more barrier to make me think about it. Telling my wife, hey, I had a really hard day today. One of the ways that I self-medicate is with food, and I'm just going to let you know it's not your responsibility to be the boss of me. That's the mistake you make in like the first five years of marriage is you tell your spouse, make me different, and they can't, and then you fight, and it doesn't go well. But asking for accountability and saying to that person, I am aware that I don't exist in a vacuum, I'm aware that I am functioning and acting in a way where you can see what I'm doing, and I'm telling you I have a draw that I don't want to give into. We call that accountability, giving an account, helping kind of open the books, the finances of your life, of where your heart is, and say to another person, I'm tempted to do something I shouldn't do. I want you to hear from Jesus today. We've gone to Matthew chapter 7, and he's going to talk about the importance of practice. And I'll just give you a warning here. I don't think many of you will mind, but a few of you uh, might. I'm going to quote this from the NIV today. I think the NIV gets the translation a little bit better. Typically, we use the ESV. So if you have the ESV, follow along. But I want you to hear from Jesus. I think this is a better literal translation of what he says in Greek. This is Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, which means in light of all the teaching that he's given so far, if you want to be a person who's going to live into the kingdom of God, if you want to be a person who's going to actually follow me, Jesus is saying, 
everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. That's the part that I like. I think the NIV got that right. If you put them into practice, you are like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Here's what happened to that guy. Crisis arrived, which is our human experience. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall. Why did it not fall? Because he chose to build his house on a rock. What is that rock? Not hearing, doing. Practicing. Not getting it right right away, not making yourself into someone that you're not, but believing that what Jesus says is true, and as best you can, beginning to train yourself to embrace those principles. Letting the knowledge that you have on Sunday cross-pollinate with the rest of your life in a way where it begins to impact you. He goes on in verse 26. He says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Every other thing that you could build your life on is sand in Jesus' eyes. All of it. Your heritage, your money, your success, your good looks, your relationship, whatever security blanket that you love to hug at night when you get existential in your own head, Jesus says, if it feels like sand running through your fingers, it's because it is sand. It's because every other ideology that you have started with a human being who tried to build something better than what God gave us at first, which was himself. And Jesus is saying, I am giving you God again. I'm teaching you to be near to him. I'm teaching you to follow his ways. That's a rock. The rest of it is sand. What happens? If you build your house on sand, verse 27, the rain will come. That's what happened to this man. The rain came down, the streams rose, there was a flood, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. A cataclysm happened. Not a low, slow sinking into the bog of life where you have a million tiny decisions to make about whether you'll change your ways or not. Disaster is what Jesus is talking about here. This is why I feel that I can preach on a regular basis to you that if your life is oriented around anything other than the way of Jesus, you are headed for self-destruction. That's what a great crash means. It will not be gentle, it will not be slow. It will come suddenly, it will surprise you, and it will destroy what you have spent your life building. Now that doesn't mean you're beyond repentance, and Jesus is not communicating that there's some action we can take that gets us outside of his kingdom. He is saying If I have taken the time to share these insights and you willingly choose not to embrace them, you are still embracing something. You're exchanging what I have given you for what other people can give you, what you can give yourself. And I love you enough to tell you, a storm is coming and when it does, the house you've built will fall. I don't want to be mean. I'm not threatening you. I'm not angry with you, but you have to understand. Sitting on this mountainside and hearing me preach Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is what Jesus is saying. It's not sufficient to transform your life. You need to practice these things. And if you're not familiar with Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's Jesus' most comprehensive teaching on the kingdom of God. It's him describing what life looks like in the new rules that come as the kingdom of God comes near, as God really puts himself back on the active throne of creation, where he's not just caring for and leading Israel, but he's taking back dominion from his enemy in Jesus. That when Jesus is tempted in the desert and then eventually goes to the cross, that those are the final battles in this war that Satan has been waging against God, a war that God was not losing, but the war that he has waited until the appointed time to fully complete. In Christ, the kingdom of God returns to the earth for us, for all of us, Gentile and Jew alike. Included in this teaching are such popular concepts of Jesus as if you lust, you should cut your eye out. Or if you're slapped in the face, turn your head and present the other side of your face to your enemy in case they would like to slap you again. Jesus says things like, those of you with murder in your hearts are as guilty as if you actually had blood on your hands. And Jesus says all of these things, and then he says, if you hear what I say, and it turns into principles without application, 
If you use the message translation of the Bible, uh, the way that this is paraphrased is, uh, my teaching is not intended simply for Bible studies. It's intended to be lived out in your daily life. That's the concept that Jesus is communicating. I'm afraid that some of us have underemphasized the importance of baby steps in our faith, of moving forward with Jesus, of looking at his teaching and saying, where would I even begin with this? Okay, let's begin there. Let's not write another book. Let's not complete another workbook full of blanks. Let's decide today to find a part of Jesus' life and bring it into our lived existence. Jesus is presenting an entirely new vision of the good life in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's flipping the rules of what it means to be human and specifically what, to, what success looks like as a human on its head. And then he ends that teaching by saying, everyone who hears this teaching and does not practice it is a fool. When we say to you that the people who love Jesus are the people who do what he says, that's not meant to insinuate that Jesus only loves people who obey him or that obedience is somehow necessary to prove your love to God. The reality is that if you don't have much love for Jesus now, if you'll just take a chance on obeying him, you will love him more. That's the principle in play. The verse that comes to mind for me is John 14, 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps my commandments, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. When he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, I believe that part of what Jesus is communicating is that by keeping his commandments, you will directly influence whether or not you love him. That by choosing to be faithful to him, you will have the kind of life that bumps up against his blessings long enough that you'll become convinced. There is no other way to live. Life outside of this kingdom, life outside of this relationship is essentially worthless. That's why the Apostle Paul speaks in terms of counting everything as loss if it means that he can be with Christ, that he'll let go of every other part of his life, his affluence, his success, his, the respect of other people, the fame, his safety, his security. All of it is, is dross. It's to be burned up stubble in the fire if he gets Christ at the end. That's not the way a fanatic speaks. That's the way a person talks when they've lived near enough Jesus for long enough that they've become convinced that what Jesus says is true is actually true. It's real. It's not made up. It's not a thing we have to try to white-knuckle our way into. We walk with Jesus low and slow, and we become convinced because he is convincing. So how do disobedient people with disobedient destructive habits, people like you and I, how do we begin to carve out new patterns in our lives? We have to make small changes in order to participate in the life of Jesus. The Apostle Paul uses a great sports analogy in his first letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says this. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Paul's writing to a church plant in Corinth who, uh, I don't know that the church itself participated, but the city was famous for having these sort of Olympic games. They weren't the actual Olympic games, but they were a big physical test of strength and speed and agility and endurance that would happen in the city every year. It'd be a big festival, draw a lot of people in. Uh, it's kind of sort of like our Furrandi. In parts it was ceremonial, but a lot of it was really meaningful and people would rally around it. So Paul's just using a common idea that the people of Corinth are familiar with. He says, so run that you may obtain it, into verse 24. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Another word for self-control is discipline. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive something imperishable, something that will not go away. So I do not run aimlessly, Paul says. I think he's implying some of you are, but I won't. I do not box as one beating the air. Okay, that's a cool word picture here. Paul's saying I'm not just throwing myself at things that are useless. I have an objective in mind. I'm training to get somewhere. I pummel my body and I make it a slave. What a beautiful word picture for what it means to mortify the flesh. John Stott wrote a great book about that a long time ago. He says, I pummel my body, I make it a slave, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Here's the great fear of every local church elder. 
I know what to say to you, but am I walking it out? Am I actually taking steps to follow Jesus? Because Jesus is moving. He's on the move. He's going. Will I go with him? I don't have to be at the front of the line. I don't need to try to be out front of him predicting where he's going to go so I can make his way easier. John the Baptist did that for all of us. His way has been prepared. It's our job to get behind him in the giant mass of people who call him Lord and Savior and follow. Paul uses the language of self-control. He says, I pummel my body to make it my slave. Paul is saying that even speaking the truth in the church does not grant him immunity from his own habits, from the longings and the cravings of his body, and so he is disciplined. He practices the way of Jesus in order to be a person who does not just speak the truth, but who lives the truth. So we need teaching. We talked about that last week, but we need teaching to produce practice in us. You can think of the concept of lecture and lab. We need to be so aware of how Jesus communicates, what he thinks is valuable, how the New Testament builds on his teaching to clarify how does the church work and who is a Christian? What do we do when we're mad at each other? How do we settle up our debts? Things like that. But any practice that we embrace also has to be built on teaching. So they go hand in hand. We will never get effective practices if we just try to look around us and learn from the world. Yet our teaching will mean very little if it never turns itself into things that we can actually do. So, to that end, uh, we discussed five ways to get teaching into your life last week. Now I want to share a handful of effective practice principles. If you're going to be a person who's willing, when we as a church arrive in the fall at the spiritual disciplines, if you're going to try to embrace these things, or if you're even going to take the summer and maybe just tinker and experiment with one, silence and solitude, a little bit of fasting, uh, contemplative prayer or listening prayer where you've only maybe just prayed requests to God in the past. If you're going to make an adjustment, these ideas are meant to guide you. They will not immediately make you into the person you wish you were. The Bible is not that kind of book. But if you'll embrace these concepts, I believe that it will help keep you on the rails and inbounds as you navigate your experience with the disciplines. The first concept is this, and if you're taking notes, I think it'd be very valuable for you to write this down. Effective practice takes a balanced approach. Effective practice takes a balanced approach. The spiritual disciplines, from my perspective, exist across at least two axes. And so I want you to take a look at this slide, and maybe you can grasp what it is that I'm talking about here. Um, And I want to give full credit. I'm borrowing this particular diagram from a pastor named John Mark Comer, a pastor in Portland, Oregon. The practices all exist on a plane made up of these two axes. First, as you can see, is the scale between practices that happen alone versus practices that happen together. There are different sets of those. That's sort of the north-south axis. The east-west axis uh, is the, the distance between disciplines of what we call restraint, which would be things, disciplines that would invite you to remove certain things from your life. Fasting is a good example of this. I'm going to take away a meal or I'm going to skip food one day a week. Uh, in order to pray, in order to be with God, in order to connect with him, in order to carve out time. If I feel too busy, I can always lose lunch and just spend that time with the Lord. Um, Other examples of that would be maybe Lent each year. Certain people observe the month of Lent as a way to uh, distance themselves from a physical craving or urge that they have in order to just try to make sure they're never chained to anything material, but they're always available to follow God's leadership. And then the other end would be engagement. Disciplines of engagement would be disciplines that add something to your life, like memorization of Scripture, if you're not already practicing that, Uh, or committing three hours to read the Gospel of Luke out loud with your life group one Saturday. That's just an example. You could get together, read the Scriptures aloud. It would take time. You'd have to plan what to do with your kids. It would get in the way of other things, but you'd be engaged in that. It would be a choice you're making to willingly participate. So that's just kind of examples of what we're talking about on on that set of axes. Here's why I think this matters. When most of us think about spiritual disciplines, it's probable, from what I know of you, that we tend to think of things that exist in that top left quadrant only. We think of things that happen alone, things that happen where we're just taking things away. So for example, uh, we think about maybe listening prayer, or we think of silence and solitude, or we think of fasting. 
And those are all good things, and those may be things that are unnatural for your personality or that would be helpful for you to begin to embrace. Uh, but there are also disciplines that happen together and that involve engagement, and we want to be balanced in our approach. We don't just want to participate in the disciplines that we can hide behind, where we can show up at Life Group and say, oh yeah, I did all this awesome stuff, and I had this great spiritual experience, but none of you are ever going to know if that's true or not. We want to be doing both. We want to be alone with God. We also want to be with God in the presence of other people. And so, for instance, uh, disciplines like community, like this weekly church gathering, this is a discipline that comes from the life of Jesus. As far as we can tell from all four Gospels, Jesus was in the synagogue every single Sabbath, as often as he possibly could be. Many of his stories, he's just leaving the synagogue or he's on his way, and it happens to be a Sabbath. And so that's what we can learn from him. He himself, the embodied God and man, chose to take the time to be gathered with other people. It's a great example for us. Uh, confession, things like that, these are about engaging in corporate practices together. And so what we need is a balanced approach. Because based on who you are, some of these disciplines are going to feel downstream for you. What I mean by that is relatively easy. If you're an introvert, if you're a person who has young kids, if you feel like you're just constantly being bombarded by people, you will always gravitate towards silence and solitude. You'll be like, I can't get enough. In fact, I'm, I, this is amazing that somebody's finally telling me I have a good reason to tell my spouse they need to come home a little bit early so I can just go in the backyard and be quiet, right? That sounds wonderful to me. You'll gravitate toward that. That's great. But there will be other disciplines that will be more upstream for you. In that particular stage of life, it may be the discipline of maintaining humility instead of exploding and snapping at those children who are bombarding you with needs and requests 24-7. So we want to be able to live into those that are downstream that maybe fit our personality more, but we also want to be willing, because they are disciplines, to do the work of having probably one at a time upstream disciplines. And I know I'm sharing language with you today that you're probably unfamiliar with. We're going to get there. We're going to all work together on how we know what's upstream, downstream, who we are. We're, we're headed that way. I just want you to know some principles here. Second is that effective practice embraces your personality. So we do all need a balanced approach, but we have immense freedom in God's grace to be ourselves with Jesus. The things that make you you are not an accident. I believe that. It is easy to read the New Testament and identify what is sin in your life. If the New Testament does not call something sin, an idea, a concept, a principle, then you ought not treat yourself like it's wrong. If you feel like you're too chatty, that's probably not a sin. That's probably a part of your personality. If you feel like you'd rather just be alone with a book in a corner than open up at Life Group, great. You're a person who has a personality that would enjoy curling up in the corner with a book. You get to choose to embrace a discipline that's upstream for you, to go to a community and participate. So there are a lot of different ways to navigate what our personalities are, many schools of thought. I'm familiar with three, the DISC or the DISC assessment. You've probably heard of the Myers-Briggs before. My favorite is called the Enneagram. Uh, the Enneagram I've found to be far and away the most effective and helpful tool for self-awareness. Uh, if you're not careful, any of these can turn into sort of a modern version of astrology. That's certainly not going to be helpful to your faith. But if you need a self-inventory tool to help you figure out why you're the way that you are and why you have natural tendencies, especially when it comes to interpersonal conflict, it can be very helpful to just try to get an idea, categorize how God made you. Uh, there's a great book that I read about nine months ago by a guy named Gary Thomas that's called Sacred Pathways. And in Gary's book, he lays out nine different ways that we typically interact with God, different people with different personalities. And here are those nine ways, just really quickly. Naturalists, people who love God outdoors, I think we have a really high concentration of those kinds of people in Anchorage. Sensates, people who love God with the senses, they truly worship over a good meal or a nice candle or a really smooth blanket. They just There's a sense of, of interacting with the world that may seem silly to you. You're probably not a sensate, but if you are, 
That's okay. It's okay to say to your community, I was with the Lord today and I felt warm on a cold day and I remembered the way that God comforts us and is near and draws us in. That's beautiful. That's not silly. Traditionalists love God through ritual and symbol. They feel near to God when we participate in communion. They like a church where somebody wears a collar and the windows have stained glass. That's fine. Ascetics love God in solitude and simplicity. These are the kinds of people who are always separating themselves from physical things and they probably want to get you to do the same thing. They want you to watch the Marie Kondo Netflix show and have you throw away all your jackets that you don't need and just have one jacket and one shirt and one pair of underwear. That's fine for them. Don't turn your asceticism into legalism. But there are people who feel connected to God by casting off the chains and the burdens of the world. Activists love God through confrontation. These are people who feel nearest to God when they are bringing justice into the world, advocating for people who cannot advocate for themselves. There are caregivers who love God by loving others, enthusiasts who love God through celebration and mystery. These are the people who want to throw everybody a wedding shower, want to throw everybody a baby shower, want to take all the time we can to celebrate baptisms and the things that are sort of milestones and markers. Let's celebrate who God is. Contemplatives, this is probably me more than any of the others, we love God through adoration. We have a really strong sense of feeling love toward him, but we internalize that. We, we are always memorizing, we're chewing on concepts, we're regurgitating great quotes and facts that we've pulled from other people because we feel that all truth is God's truth. And so where we can find it, we, we get glimpses of his character and his person. And then finally, intellectuals who love God by studying and internalizing. Oftentimes great teachers who can regurgitate an immense amount of information for you and they feel close to God in helping you understand the way that God has laid out. So I would just encourage you, find the practices that make you come alive, allow the downstream to be downstream. Wherever you fall in these nine, if you've never considered these before, don't feel bad about that. There's nothing wrong. Not one of these nine is better than the others. All of these, to some degree, show up in the life of Christ. And so you have the freedom to be yourself as you follow Jesus as well. Number three, effective practice embraces your season of life. We all need to be able to name and understand what I call our stage of discipleship. There's a couple of different schools of thought. Dallas Willard has five stages of discipleship in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Pete Scazzaro has six stages of discipleship in his book, The Emotionally, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. There's different debate. All of them are sourced in scripture, but eventually, probably in 2023, we're going to walk through this together as a church. We're going to take the time to figure out where we fall on a spectrum, and I think it's going to help you understand that you may have been ingesting resources and participating in teaching that was meant for a person at a different stage than you. That's a, it's a huge source of our frustration in the local church. If we keep showing up for something that's designed for people who've been walking with Jesus for 80 years and we just met him on Tuesday, it's going to be hard to jump in. At the same degree, you may have been a part of churches before that can never advance you past stage two, and you feel that you've been there for a decade or two decades, and all the sermons are still trying to reach people who don't know anything about Jesus, and you feel like you've kind of run out of what you can learn from those basic concepts and principles. Knowing where you stand will be a, an immense help to you. Number four, effective practice prescribes based on need. So for example, sins that we're committing, things that are wrong because we're choosing to do them, oftentimes call for practices of restraint in response. You remember those two axes. Uh, for instance, if you're dealing with a sin born from bodily desire, something like lust or violence or self-mutilation, then the disciplines that call you to retake control over your body will immediately bear fruit in the area of your weakness, even if the discipline seems unrelated. So oftentimes for young men who are dealing with pornography, I gave you that example earlier, one of the most effective things they can do is not simply remove the opportunity, but begin to identify what do they feel and what do they want in the moments before they choose to make that decision. What longing, what craving, what hole in them do they think they're actually filling with this? Because it's not usually just a carnal desire to participate in lust. 
It's a desire to have control. It's a desire to find release. It's a desire to get some kind of mental high in their brain. And if we can begin to identify those things and take back control over our bodies by fasting or by exercising or by changing the pattern of our day, we'll often find that those strong temptations become weaker and weaker because we've put ourselves back to some degree in the driver's seat of our body. In the same way, if you deal with sins of omission, they often call for practices of engagement. If you're a person who feels that the wickedness in your life has led you to just keep the church at arm's length, you don't trust anybody, you're bored by what the church is, you think you've heard it all before, you've seen it all before, the disciplines that would probably benefit you in that season would be choosing to engage with the life, life of the local church, even if you don't feel like doing it. Take communion, trusting and believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and wait for him to turn that into something in your life. Show up on a baptism Sunday or show up on a prayer night where there's not going to be a sermon given, which maybe is all you think the church is supposed to be for for you, and participate in prayer even if you don't feel like praying. Participate in worship even if you don't feel that much love going on. What Jesus says, if you've heard his words and practiced them, you'll be people who love him. That will change you slowly over time. Number five, we just have this and one more to go. Effective practice follows the pain. So this is a principle from the physical exercise world. You often find when you're exercising, especially if you haven't done that in a long time, you find out where your weaknesses are based on where the pain is happening. So you may have really strong legs. This has always been me. I've been able to squat way more than I can bench press or shoulder press or anything like that. But my upper body is frail and small, like an old woman. And I can't really do a lot in the gym. And I used to really beat myself up about that. But instead, I've realized that I just need training. I need to go slow. I can slam some weights around with my legs. That's fine if I feel like I need to do that. But instead of avoiding where my weakness is or simply pouring into only my strengths, That pain, that resistance, that sense of being uncomfortable identifies for me an area where I can choose to begin to concentrate. That doesn't mean we just hammer ourselves to death where our weaknesses are, but it means that we account for those weaknesses in the plan that we make for what our practices will be. In the same way that a day of chopping firewood will very quickly help me identify the weakness in my lower back from sitting in a chair five days a week most of the day, an hour at a prayer night may immediately show me the degree to which I have internalized not God's word but my grocery list. That silence, that quiet may invite me at first not into what God would have for me, but the reminder of missed calls and missed texts, notifications, the stress in my life that seems to shout louder than God's word. Take a minute and allow that emotional response to be diagnostic for you, and then begin to take that into account. Take steps, embrace practices that will help you actually change the way your life is lived. I'll give you a great example. Uh, One of our elders is a guy named Mike Ottenweller. And Mike is sort of a mountain runner. I think he's like 10 or 15 years older than me, but he's in crazy good shape. Uh, And so he likes to take me hiking, and I like to go with him because he knows what he's doing. Um, I remember in 2019 when we first moved here, we hiked Ptarmigan Peak in April. So there's still a lot of snow just a few weeks earlier than we are now, but a couple of years ago. And we're on our way up. We're coming up through this valley, and we're looking for the saddle, and that's all stuff that I don't even know what that means. I'm just kind of trying to keep Mike in my line of sight. And I remember at one point, I'm so covered in sweat, I'm like wheezing, moaning, like, Mike, Mike, I thought this was going to be fun. Mike, you said this was your favorite thing to do. I hate this. I wish I would have woken up with the stomach flu today. It would have been better. This is, I could just be home and have the stomach flu in my bathroom instead of whatever this is called. And I remember Mike's like, he's basically floating an inch off the ground, just like skipping along <laughs> through the heather. And he turns back to me and he smiles and he says, you just have to embrace the suck. Yeah. That's that's what we're talking about here. You have to account for the idea that this is not going to feel good. (laughs) Yeah. So be careful, all right? If you're hanging out with me, you might wind up getting quoted. The great theologian, Mike Ottenweller, right? I remember that day thinking, you're going to be such a great shepherd of souls, Mike. What a great elder candidate you'll be someday. (laughs) 
I'm kidding, Mike's awesome, and he's actually not here today, so I told him I was going to take that shot at him a little bit. But that's the concept, and I'm telling you that because I want you to remember it. When you see Mike Ottenweller walk around this church, I want you to remember, I want him to represent in your life that the disciplines are going to be harder than you think. And some of them are going to invite you to bring up things that you'd rather ignore, things that your family may have ignored for generation after generation. You have the opportunity in Jesus to do this differently. And the hope that we have, the reason we need teaching, is our imaginations have to believe that we don't have to become our parents. We don't have to become our grandparents. God will make something new from us. He says he brings us into a new family. And many of us don't really know how family can be good. Oftentimes, especially as we hit our 30s and 40s, we're just constantly confronted with the negatives that came from our family. We're tempted by the kind of culture of our day to ignore the good and the right that came out of that. That's a blessing, not a curse. For Jesus to bring us into a new family is to rebuild many things that many of us have never seen done right. And it's a chance to do that together in community. We want to approach practice with the understanding that it may not be fun, but if, the, if we will follow the pain, we will grow. And hear me, this is a journey of decades that we have, we're all just barely starting on. You're not going to face your father wounds and heal from your abusive past and stop hating what you look like and start loving your enemies in three easy steps. It's going to take time. Last one here, effective practice is the byproduct of repetition. You may have heard it said before that repetition is the mother of learning. You've probably heard that practice makes perfect. That is not necessarily true, but the practices are helpful in training. Um, Richard Foster, who wrote The Celebration of Discipline, which is sort of the gold standard introductory text on the disciplines, said in a lecture one time that the disciplined person is not rigid. We misunderstand that. We think that discipline is just getting our life so on the rails that we don't have to think anymore. He defines the disciplined person as the person who is able to do the right thing at the right time. And that is, to me, the definition of freedom and flexibility. I don't have to worry about making sure I grab the right ammo for my day. If I've been with Jesus, if I've gotten into God's presence and stayed there, he will bring me to whatever situation he needs me in, and he will equip me with what he needs me to have. The choice that I make is whether or not I will acknowledge him those first 30 minutes after my head pops off the pillow. Will I acknowledge him in the car on the way? Will I choose to speak to him instead of just listening to the radio or whatever song that I like or trying to finish that last bit of the history podcast that I'm into? Will I find moments, chinks in the armor of my life in which to insert the truth and the presence of God? If I will do that, then across the years and decades of my life, the repetition of that will change me. I will be different than I am today. Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. So don't be afraid to try. Then John Mark Comer reinterpreted that. I like this phrase, too. He says, the spiritual disciplines are not about trying really hard. They're about training really hard. When we train, we do things that are within our capacity so that eventually we can do things that are not in our capacity now. That's what training gets you to. If you want to be able to do a six-foot box jump, you have to start with a two-inch box jump. And then you do that until you've got it nailed down and your form is right and you're not compromising your body. And then you move up to a foot box jump and then a two-foot box jump. And then you quit doing box jumps for the summer because you got busy, and so you have to go back to a two-inch again and start over. That's the way this is going to feel for us. We will not be celebrating victories every week in life group. We will be sharing the journey with each other. We will be encouraging other, each other to get back up. Go at it again. We're here for you. God is present. He loves you. You have a chance to be his hands and feet in the world. We have every day between here and eternity to make small choices, to fill our days up with practices, and to follow Jesus on the way. So I want to share one funny thought with you, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of homework, and we'll be done this morning. Uh, there's a pastor in San Francisco, a guy who wrote a book actually called Practicing the Way of Jesus, named Mark Scandrett. Uh, and Mark's a total Gen Xer. He has, like, big red glasses, a faux hawk, lots of earrings. He's in his 50s. He seems like a really cool guy. I've never met him. 
But he founded this place. He was a pastor for a while, and then he identified the need for a place for people to come and workshop their Christian practices. And so he founded what's called the Reimagine Center in San Francisco. Uh, And one of the programs that they offer is a week-long program, and they call it the Jesus Dojo, which I think is kind of cool. And I know it's too late to recommend new names for the church. I think we should have at least considered Jesus Dojo (laughs) for our church, right? I think a few people would have come in to see what was going on. Here's why Mark calls it that. He he grabs your attention, so that's good. He's, He's good at marketing. But he says, because practicing the way of Jesus should be less like showing up for book club and more like learning karate. Like, if you want to be able to get on the mat and do karate and block kicks and land punches, you don't do that by getting online and reading about karate and figuring out what the Greek word for karate is and all of the different history and tradition of karate. That theory can be helpful on some level, but eventually you have to put your gi on, tie on your belt, and get on the mat. And the first time you do that, you're not going to be good at karate. It doesn't matter how much you read. In fact, and here's just a principle to chew on, you could actually overcompensate by knowing too much theory to the point that it gets in your way. I agree with Mark. I think that those principles apply to our Christianity. I think we oftentimes know so much theory that it gets in the way of us actually getting on the mat and trying. We have so many unhelpful concepts about how you can, a person on the street, if you give them too much money or at the wrong time or you don't ask the right questions or you don't give them a Bible with the dollar or if, if they smell like cigarette smoke or they smell like alcohol, we put all these barriers in place where we tell ourselves there's only one tiny narrow set of circumstances in which Jesus would actually want us to do the thing he actually said. Instead of being people who have learned real life lessons by being with a person who has real needs, you'll pick up what you need. God has given you the brain, the heart, the body to do that, but we over-theorize sometimes by overemphasizing teaching to the point that we're not even helpful anymore. You don't learn to defend yourself in hand-to-hand combat from reading and studying theory. Practice is as essential for those of us who hope to use our bodies, minds, and spirits to follow Jesus as it is for those who want to learn to block a punch or land a kick. So, a little bit of homework for you. I'm going to ask you in the next week or two weeks to participate in what I call a formation audit. A formation audit, okay? Very, very simple for you, and you don't have to do this, okay? Like every part of this process, if this is not your thing, if you're skeptical, if you're not into it, I would invite you in. I think you'd actually have a lot to offer your small group and and the people that are in your life, but nobody's going to make you do this. These are not prerequisites to membership here. I'm not saying you can't call yourself a Christian if you don't do these things, but just the tiniest baby step would be a formation audit. This comes out of James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love, In the next seven days, try to find an hour where you can sit down and write down some of the normal rhythms of your life. So think about your days. Do you start your days the same every day? What do you do once a week? In my house, there's one day a week that we call chore day, and we try to get certain things done on that day, but that impacts our planning. It impacts our mentality. It's a little bit frustrating. That's something I would need to account for in my life. Um, Think about what you do every month. You can do this all at once. You can take one hour in the evening in the next week or two and just sit down and kind of evaluate. It would probably help if you're married to bounce some of these things off your spouse if you have a minute to do that. Or you can jot down a few notes on your phone every day before bed or in the morning while you wait for your coffee to brew. Just take a few seconds. This is not a huge, giant project. You don't need to write a paper. It's just a chance to reflect. What you are looking for is any pattern that seems to happen daily. Things like how you start your day, how early you wake up compared to when your responsibilities actually begin. Are you getting up an hour before your day starts? Are you getting up 10 minutes before your day starts and throwing on yesterday's dirty clothes and running out the door? I'm not here to moralize that. That's up to you. But just know that those steps have an effect on you. Those are habits, those are routines that you are participating in because of choices that you've made that have an effect. How do you spend time in the digital space? What are your meal habits like? 
What are your alcohol habits like? What are the stress indicators that show up in your life? Who do you make the most contact with and what effect do those relationships have on you? Now, once you feel that you have a list of just five, five or 10 even, if you're type A like me, you're like 20, 20. Okay, okay, that's fine, do 20, that's great. Don't tell everybody else you did 20, just do it for you. But five, let's just go with five, okay? Bring your five to life group. You guys can decide as a life group if you wanna make one evening about this for you, that's great, it's up to you, I'm not gonna tell you what you have to do. But find a way to integrate this into your, your highs and lows, how the week has been going. I want you to hear from each other. This is great to share with your spouse. If you have children who live in your home that are mature and have followed Christ, then great. You guys can interact with this as well. But other people who live outside of your life need to hear you describe these things. Because there will begin to be the experience of rubber meeting the road as you begin to pull other people in. And they know what to ask about. Because here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Here's where the audit becomes an audit. Pick one of those things that you've identified. Let's say there's five, the way you start the day, et cetera. Pick one of those five and just change it. Just take it out for, for a day, just to, for one day. Just take it out and plug in what we would call a spiritual discipline instead. And if you don't even know what those are, Google them. There are all kinds of lists. There's no official list in the Bible. It's simply living the way of Jesus, figuring out what rhythms you need to be able to do that daily. So maybe pull a meal out if you have a, a lot of stress at mealtime and you tend to just kind of fly through it to get back to work and fast for that one meal. And just use that time to think and consider and pray and tell God, God, you're here and I'm here and we're together and nothing is burning down around me and life is gonna go on and just let that be a calming kind of touch point in your day. Just an example. So you're gonna identify, you're gonna pull one out, you're gonna stick a discipline in and then if you don't have an immediate, violent, adverse reaction to that, okay, if, you're not, if it's not triggers all over you for whatever thing you chose to do, which 99% of us, that should not be the case. We should be able to do this. After you've done it for a day, do it for two days. Do it for three days. Let's just see. Just try to plug it in and see how long it'll take you. And then when it stops, try to notice why it stopped. What are the things that break into your life that seem more urgent than these kinds of things? This is your homework, and I'm not gonna give you a lot more homework in the coming weeks. I want you to just play with this idea. A lot of us are going on vacation. A lot of us are gonna go fishing. A lot of us are gonna go hunting. We're gonna travel. We're gonna camp. Your life is about to get crazy. What an awesome opportunity to get into the laboratory with all kinds of variables that you don't normally have and try to figure out who are you, who are you becoming, where is God taking you, and how much of that is just passive, it's just happening to you, and where can you begin to take some responsibility. So again, just experiment, evaluate the change that happens to you, and all you're doing is you're exchanging the way of you, so in my case, I'm exchanging the way of Philip for the way of Jesus, that's what I'm trying to do. Baby steps, here and there, do what you can, talk about it, evaluate, process it, and pray for each other. I think it will be impactful. I think you'll find that this is the beginning of a very long journey for you and the Lord. So with that said, next week when we get together, we'll talk about community. We'll try to understand how community is not just important, but is necessary, is integral, and is key in our discipleship, our apprenticeship to Jesus. So I hope you'll make it a priority to be here. I want to pray for you and with you. I appreciate you going with me this morning, and then we'll finish in song today. Father, thank you for the chance to be uh, just together and to interact with how you've made us, how you've designed us, and God, we want to be people who leverage our biology. We want to be people who leverage our, our mental state, our spirituality, people who understand and know ourselves well enough that we can bring all of us to you. And so I pray for open-mindedness for us. I know that these are a lot of new concepts. Um, I know for many of us, we've probably never heard these kinds of things talked about in church before, and I hope that this can be, be the beginning of kind of the end of that, that you'll make us into a group of people who can speak about who we are, how you've made us, where we're going. God, guard us from pride. This is the great threat of any part of this process to begin to convince ourselves that we're scoring points in some kind of system. Keep us open-handed, God. Keep us humble. Keep us vocal. Allow us to speak up, to be clear, to be faithful, to stay committed. 
We want to become people who are living into the way of Jesus and who are following you. So we love you. I pray for these men and women, God, my brothers and sisters. Bless them and draw them near. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.